The Jod Cost with George Bendo, Tian Bezaitnak, Alice Hampridge, Michael Wright and Jake Stabur Morgan. The Jod Cost, October 2019 Extra Edition. Hello and welcome to The Jod Cost. Uh, I'm Tian and joining me in the studio are Alice and Jake. Hello. Hi. It's been a little while since I've been in this chair actually. Yeah, it's nice to see some of the old faces around. Mm. And we have a new face with us this afternoon. Yeah. So do you want to maybe introduce yourself a little bit to the listeners, what you're doing here at JBCA? Um, I'm Alice Humbage. I'm a MSc student, and I'm working in the Exoplanets department with Ian MacDonald. Yes, she's one of us. Brilliant to hear. So, yeah, on planet data that I took last year, actually. Oh. So it's an interesting target, so I'm looking forward to seeing what comes of this. In the show this time, George Bendo answers your astronomical questions, and I have a brief interview with Atsuhisa Ota about his work in cosmology and CMB. But first, we have Michael Wright talking to Shabazz Chowdhury in this month's Job Bite. Welcome to this month's Job Bite. Joining me in the studio is Shabazz Chowdhury, who is working in plasma physics. Please introduce yourself. Hi, I'm Shabazz. I'm working with Philippa Browning at, at the Jodrell Bank Center for Astrophysics. I'm looking at the solar coronal heating problem. So a good place to start then. What is the solar coronal heating problem? So the solar coronal heating problem is where the solar corona is around a million degrees hotter than the surface of the sun known as the photosphere, which is part of the sun that's responsible for producing light. And we are are trying to understand why that is the case. Okay, so that's an unexpected thing for it to be much hotter than the surface of the sun. Yeah, because you assume that the further from the core you get, where all the heat is generated, the temperature would decrease and not spike suddenly as you move further and further away from the core. Very interesting then, and an unsolved problem in physics. What's your attempt then? How are you trying to solve this problem? There are many different mechanisms at play and one is uh, something called MHD waves which is just a plasma wave. However, what I'm looking at is these um, tiny flux tubes on the surface of the sun and what I'm studying is how they dissipate heat energy and, and lead to heating. Okay, to get started with that then, what is a flux tube? So a flux tube is literally, as, as you say, a tube that's bent um, often around regions of open magnetic field lines, such as sunspots, and often the magnetic field lines exit out of one sunspot and enter uh, through another. And sunspots are often, they often have different polarities and different hemispheres. So say on the northern hemisphere, for example, it could have a positive polarity, the negative hem- on the southern hemisphere it could have a negative polarity and then you can have a, you can have magnetic field lines connecting the two sunspots and then have a certain cylindrical geometry between them okay that's starting to make sense and you now i suppose are trying to use this to explain why the corona is as hot as it is yep because the there's no there's not really any conduction in the corona so it's basically a vacuum and so one of the mechanisms we're looking at is these flux tubes to kind of see how um, 
magnetic energy could be converted into thermal energy and lead to heating. So you now have magnetic energy, you need to convert it into thermal energy. What's your theory of why this is happening? So what happens is in the sun, because it's a, a hot ball of plasma, you have lots of random motion and convective motion beneath these so-called regions of open field lines, which can twist the magnetic field at the foot points of the flux tube. This can kind of like twist the magnetic field up more and more over time. And at a point where it reaches a critical threshold, like there's too much twist, the energy has to release itself. It does so through a pro process known as magnetic reconnection, which is the mechanism by which uh, magnetic field lines are broken. And actually the breaking, the, the distance of the breaking field line is proportional to the energy released. So you could imagine initially there being quite a spirally flux tube and after a while it becomes less spiraled after releasing, releasing a certain amount of energy. Okay, then clearly that energy can heat the corona. Yeah, that's what we're postulating. Give us a brief sort of explanation of what the maths is that you're using for this, because it must be quite difficult working out how much energy is released, which I suppose is what you want to know. Okay, so the maths involved is, so we use a theory which is known as relaxation theory. It's not what you do when you go home and you sit on the couch. <laughs> Oh, it's a bit it's a bit more um, tedious tedious than that initially we have a function for the energy of the system and then we can minimize that so we have an initial state and then after minimizing we have a final state for the energy and we can calculate the difference between the two to find out the energy released and then that can kind of give us an estimate for the energy released from one flux tube for example Okay, so what's the advantage of working things out this way? Okay, the advantage of working things out this way is that you just deal with the initial and final states, which is quite helpful when you have things like turbulence and difficult non-linear effects, which are quite hard to solve exactly. Okay, so you get an approximate, which means you don't need to do the maths of that turbulence. I'd say we get an exact value of the final energy, How, however it's almost a cheat that we can get the final energy without dealing with all this complex intermediate behaviour, which is quite nice actually. Actually relaxation theory, which looks at the relaxation of the field lines, what I explained before with the initial twisting and then the relaxation to like a lower twist, was first done inside of a tokamak. So in a laboratory plasma. So the energy release has already been confirmed experimentally. Ah, that's clever. That's good. Mm. And that experiment then, are you getting energies from that that seem reasonable or seem like they should be able to explain the heating problem? The energies, the energies that we obtain do seem reasonable. The main reason we can't confirm this absolutely is because we lack the resolution to see all of these uh, flux tubes. Because the, the kind of flux tubes that we are looking for are so-called uh, nano flux tubes, 
which mean that they are smaller than the average flux tube that you would see on the sun. So the order of length we're looking at is typically 150 kilometers long. And imagine the sun's radius is many, many magnitudes higher than that. And it'd be quite a difficult task for a space-based telescope to count the number of these so-called nano-flux tubes. Uh, okay, I suppose you need to look for the smaller ones because you need to know how many there are, roughly. Yeah, and, and with the larger ones, often the energy just escapes into space in terms of a solar flare. So most of the energy is just ejected. And that's one of the main reasons we look for the smaller so-called nano-flares, which, which could uh, be responsible for coronal heating. I think one last question then. You've talked about these twists appearing in magnetic fields in these loops. Roughly, how does that happen? So, again, as I said, underneath the flux tubes you have convective motion, which sort of twists the magnetic field in the flux tube further. So when the relaxation actually happens is when there's an instability arising known as a kink instability. And you can try this at home. If you have a rubber band and you twist it many times and you keep twisting it and you can kind of see that it kinks and when it kinks that can lead to reconnection and then basically what happens is there's res there's less twist in the resulting flux tube. Okay, and that provides your energy. Well, thank you for that. That was a very interesting little talk on solar physics. Thank you. I'm, I'm glad you enjoyed it and I hope everyone learns something from it. Okay, back to the studio. Now, Jake Stahlberg Morgan interviews Atsuhisa Otter about his work in cosmology and the CMB. We're joined this afternoon by Dr. Atsuhisa Ota, who has come to us from the University of Cambridge. So, welcome to the show. Thank you. So, as I understand it, you are a theoretical cosmologist working on study of the CMB, is that right? Yes, I am. Okay, so should we maybe start off by talking a little bit about what the CMB is and how it came about? Sure. So, um, you know, if you see the night sky, we can see the stars. We, if you have some scope, uh, we also see galaxies. If you extract such a source of lights, still we have some radiation, background of radiations. So this is a CMB, and... We usually think that this CMB is coming from the very early universe. Big Bang Theory says our universe starts from the very hot, very dense period. In that period, the photons are moving around, and then it becomes transparent in the universe. So now we can see the remnant of such photons as CMB in the present sky. Oh, okay, so it's effectively an afterglow of that moment of creation. Yeah. If we go out and look at the CMB with a telescope, what what does it look like? Is it uniform? Does it have structure in it? It is fairly uniform, but has also the 10 to the minus fifth of anisotropy. So what do we mean when we say anisotropy? It's not isotropic. I mean, there is some fluctuations in the sky. The fact that this isn't uniform, what can that then tell us? about the early universe. In the standard cosmology, we consider that these fluctuations are originated from the quantum fluctuations during inflation, which is ex 
accelerated expansion before the Big Bang. You've mentioned inflation there, which is something that a lot of cosmologists are quite keen on at the moment. Mm -hmm. So can we maybe expand a little bit on that? Why is, why is inflation necessary to explain the universe as it appears? The Big Bang cosmology is very successful theory. We can explain why CME is so uniform, why we have Hubble law, which means the distant galaxy is traveling far away from us, why we have light elements in their universe. We can explain these very important observational facts by Big Bang cosmology. At the same time, Big Bang cosmology has very strange initial condition problems. For example, the structures in the universe is very scale invariant. The structure is everywhere in the, in the universe and the correlation is very long, lane, long range. But uh, we need to prepare the seeds of such a structure in the very early universe. But it's strange that very distant places are correlated because such a long distance is causally disconnected in the very early universe. So if we have inflation, which is accelerated universe before a big bang, we can set such a seeds of structure as quantum fluctuations in, in the early universe. So this is a very key point of inflation. And so you're attempting to probe those fluctuations and how they arose through perturbation theory. Is that yeah. right? Yes. So I suppose we should take a brief dive into the murky world of quantum mechanics mm -hmm. and talk a little bit about what perturbation theory is. Could you talk us through that? So the problems of physics are very difficult in many cases. If we have equation motion, we know the answer, but analytically solvable problems are very restricted. In case of cosmology, we can solve the Einstein equations if the universe is isotropic and homogeneous, but if it's inhomogeneous, the problem is very complicated. So in this case, we expand the inhomogeneities around this very well-known problem, I mean, around the homogeneous and isotropic case. So this is the perturbation theory in this case. So I'm reminded at this point of something that my quantum mechanics teacher said mm -hmm. at the start of one of my undergrad modules. And she told us that there are two kinds of problems in quantum mechanics. There are ones that have been solved many times before and ones that are too difficult for students. Mm -hmm. So I'm guessing your work falls into the latter category. Yeah. I was worried you'd say that. <laughs> <laughs> So these small-scale perturbations that we're able to see in the CMB, how small is small here? Are there, is there some behavior that's hidden to us, or do we think we understand what's going on? So we usually refer to the scale in units of megaparsec. Megaparsec is 10 to the 6 of parsec. Parsec is the typical distance between stars. The me megaparsec is about a uh, galaxy scale. So what we can see in the present CMB is about 3 gigaparsec to 1 megaparsec. This is the observable scale. Another phrase that you mentioned in your seminar that you gave to us this afternoon was statistical 
anisotropies. What do we mean when we say statistical anisotropies? As I said, there is a, there are anisotropies in the CMB, but uh, each fluctuations are considered as the random realization on top of the isotropic universe. But if the background universe is not isotropic, then uh, the assumption is changed. So in this case, we say statistically anisotropic. So it's saying that the universe is fundamentally inhomogeneous on some level. Fundamentally anisotropic, yes. So what work have you been undertaking recently to explore this? I found there is uh, such a statistical anisotropic signal in the anisotropy in the CMB spectral distortions. Uh, yeah, I suppose we can call it that. I know your colleagues are waiting for coffee as well. Yeah. So I suppose it does seem impolite to keep them for much longer. So, Dr. Ota, thank you very much for your time. Thank you. Thanks for that, Jake. Now we come to the part of the show where we fit in all those other bits that we couldn't fit in anywhere else. The odds and ends. I'll start us off um, talking about the Nobel Prize in Physics that uh, was recently awarded. Uh, this year's prize has been awarded to three astrophysicists, uh, James Peebles from Canada won half the prize for his contribution to the body of theory surrounding the evolution of the universe, uh, while the Swiss astronomers Michel Mayer and Didier Kellos shared the remaining half for their discovery of a planet beyond our solar system using Doppler spectroscopy. Uh, now, seeing as none of us three are cosmologists, uh, I thought it'd be best to steer clear of the dangerous cosmological waters uh, and focus on what even us simple-minded time-domain astronomers can understand. Um, now, I'm sure the listeners have read all there is to know about this topic already, uh, but since we're an astronomy podcast, uh, it would be criminal not to go over this even broadly. Uh, so I'll try to summarize as economically as I can. The discovery in 1995 was of a planet 50 light years away, orbiting the main sequence star 51 Pegasi. It's a gaseous planet weighing about 150 Earth masses, and it has a surface temperature around 1000 degrees centigrade, uh, placing it in the category of hot Jupiters, uh, which are structurally similar to Jupiter, which, but which are very close to their host stars, so that they have orbital periods on the order of a few days. Uh, now, since the planet is so heavy and so close to its star, its gravity makes the host star wobble back and forth uh, to a very slight but measurable degree. The radial velocity confers a Doppler shift to the star's spectral lines that varies sinusoidally, and this unaccounted for periodic variation in the star's spectrum that rats out the orbiting planet. So Mayer and Kellos used spectrographic observations from the Haute-Provence Observatory in southern France to detect the Doppler shift in Pegasi B's emission spectrum, uh, and then they concluded from that that there was a planet orbiting it. Uh, so that's pretty much all you have to know about this discovery. What I find kind of perturbing is the amount of articles that I found calling this the discovery of the first exoplanet, which mm, isn't. That annoyed me as well. Because three years earlier... Alexander Volschan and uh, Dale Frail had discovered a multi-planet system orbiting a millisecond pulsar named Litch using pulsar timing. 
so the, the Nobel Prize specifically is for detecting the first planet orbiting a main sequence star and also for pioneering the field of exoplanet astronomy, uh, which has really exploded since the discovery. Uh, so I just wanted to make sure that amid all the rightful praise going towards Maya and Kellogg's, Volschan uh, and Frail also receive some due credit. Uh, but I think, Jake, you'll probably know better about this than me. Yeah, well, I think with this prize itself, it's awarded not just for the discovery, but the development of the techniques behind it. Because, of course, radial velocity follow-ups still remain extremely important in exoplanet studies today, particularly for confirming the masses of transiting planets, which you can't get through the transit method alone. All right. I was wondering about that because I read uh, a list somewhere which listed exoplanet discoveries by detection method. Mm. And only of those, only about 18% have been discovered by the radial velocity. Yeah. And about 77% by the transit. So I was wondering why specifically it was given to the people who did the radial velocity method. But is it because it, you, you can measure the mass that way? Is that so important? Uh, partly. I'm guessing the, the simpler reason is that they were first. Well, in 1995, so the transit method hadn't been developed yet. That would be a few more years in coming. Sure. I think 2005, maybe? And that was earlier than that. I think it was at the turn of the new millennium, HD 209458B. I'm writing up my thesis at the moment. It's my job to know this I stuff. Tell that. <laughs> the only time when people know these codes for like names of things is when they're actively writing papers. Yeah. Thesis yeah, well, I mean, in normal conversation, I just call it HD telephone number. Uh, yeah, <laughs> yeah, it's the same with pulsar names as well. I can, you know, I just know the crab and the. Yeah, the I I still haven't cottoned on to the pulsar naming convention yet. Well, Maybe if I go to enough time domain lunches, I'll be able to crack it. Yeah, no, you should <laughs> stop going to those. Um, well, I do go to those. I just haven't been in enough of them yet to crack the code. Yeah, we're not uh, accommodating to the. Other time domain people. <laughs> well, I feel we're getting into a little too much office <laughs> politics here. That's uh, no, good. Um... Yeah, well, I guess the discovery is significant as well because it was so far beyond what the team was expecting to find at the time. Because obviously our own solar system has no hot Jupiter analogues like 51 Pegasi B. And at first they were worried that their new instruments were playing up. Because this was a new spectrograph, the LED spectrograph that they developed to help make this discovery. So that was their initial worry. So were they expecting to find anything at all at that stage? Uh, they They were expecting to find something, but not nearly as quickly as they did. They were anticipating a survey that would take several years before they would confirm anything like this. Because yeah, to show but... that you can never really predict how these surveys will go. Because mm. yeah, I know of, of others where the converse is true and you just end up disappointed after a couple of years. Yeah, well, the universe loves to surprise us. <laughs> That's very true. Um, sure, shall we move on to Alice? What do you have for us this week? Yeah, so I looked into Spacebit, who have announced their a lunar rover. The UK company Spacebit has recently announced its lunar rover and it's going to the moon in it's going to the moon 
in 2021 aboard the Astrobotic Lunar Lander. Astrobotic was one of three companies which was awarded around $80 million by NASA to get landers to the surface of the moon. This is because NASA is trying to get people back to the moon by 2024. Um, Astrobotic will send up its Peregrine lander with both NASA and commercial payloads along with the small rover designed by the UK company Spacebit. This rover is very small. It's only one to one and a half kilograms. Um, it looks a bit like a spider. It's square and it's got four legs. Uh, it's much smaller than usual rovers, which are over a meter big and have wheels. This rover looks a little bit sci-fi and it can jump, which is quite fun. So it's designed in this small and nimble way because it, they're hoping to get it to explore under the moon's surface in lava tubes. And lava tubes are caves where lava flows underneath already solidified lava. And after it leaves, there's these underground tunnels. And they're on Earth and the moon, which I didn't realise. Hmm. So will this rover be carrying any instrument payload? It will take some measurements and it's got a HD video camera. Oh, okay. Um, so they're hoping to get video footage of what these caves look like. I think so, yeah. After So it'll spend 10 days on the surface and then it'll freeze as the moon becomes nighttime. Oh, that's really sad. Yeah, yeah the camera makes it look like it's got eyes as well. Oh. <laughs> I think I read they only meant to travel 10 metres in their lifetime. I think so, yeah. That's great. Yeah. I was wondering, like, what can you tell exactly from having moved 10 metres? Hmm. Yeah, well, I mean, I'm sure the designers themselves would like to do more. Yeah. yeah. I guess they're restricted by the the size of the rover. Um, so the rover doesn't have a name yet, um, and they're going to let children enter a competition to name it. Um, oh, should... We, should, we should think of a name and send it in. Ah, oh, maybe we could. Yeah. So I just... Name it the Jodcast uh, Explorer. The Jodbug. The Jodbug, yeah. yes. Jodbug. <laughs> yeah, is there some sort of uh, poll that people, people can fill in? I think it will be an online competition, and it's meant to be for children, but I don't know how oh. they're going to tell that it's just children. Yeah, we'll have to it. hope that the wider internet doesn't find out about it. <laughs> that might be disastrous. But so, yeah, they'll, they'll end up calling it something unspeakably racist. <laughs> yeah, but uh, once that uh, poll does come out, we'll make sure to uh, put all our listeners onto nominating Jodberg. <laughs> be really exciting. Yeah. Right, shall we? Can we move on to Jake? Yeah. So I've got a bit of a form at this point in the show for either going on a bit of a rant about something that I've seen in space-related news or just generally talking about pretty heavy astronomy-adjacent topics. And today is no exception to that. So today's subject is climate change and how we as astronomers, both individually and as a wider field, are going to have to deal with that. So it's an astronomy-adjacent issue. So this was sparked by seeing last week a white paper 
that were submitted as part of the Canadian Long Range Plan 2020. So the Canadian government as a whole was putting out a call for what projects should be prioritised in the coming decade. It's an invitation for overviews of which missions should be backed, what technologies are expected to mature in the next 10 years, that kind of thing. And so this particular white paper is titled Astronomy in a Low-Carbon Future, backed by a bunch of different authors across Canada. And so this isn't backing any particular missions or instruments as such. It's an overview of how the field as a whole ought to change and and how these changes can be achieved in the next 10 years. So the opening section is about the global climate crisis and the science backing that. But I wanted to focus today on how these issues will affect astronomy and how astronomers, us, will go about our work in the next 10 years. So like I said, the focus on how this will affect astronomy and what we can do. So the opening paragraph of the section titled Astronomy's Role and Responsibility, which I'd like to read now if I may, goes as such. At the most basic level, astronomy exists to serve humanity's quest for knowledge about its place and future in the universe. To ignore a clear and present threat to that place and that future would be irresponsible in the extreme. Pursuits like astronomy would cease to exist if insufficient action is taken and the more alarming predictions materialise. It is time for our professional community to confront its climate impact and to plan for a low-carbon future. Our long-range planning exercises provide ideal opportunities to declare our intentions. So again, it's a white paper. It's looking forward to the next 10 years. So just around the room, any suggestions off the top of heads about what might be suggested in here? Um, Well, I I think one of the kind of main focuses that they had, I kind of scanned the paper, uh, was the way in which uh, especially travel is organised. That's that's a recurring theme throughout this, yeah. Of course, air travel is extremely expensive carbon-wise. And if you know any astronomers, they'll tell you worldwide travel is a huge part of being an astronomer. Mm. Uh, attending conferences and visiting different universities and all these things um, and the thought is that it's important that we kind of start to tone this down a bit and try to think of ways of encouraging international cooperation and all that uh, but um, with while also being more environmentally conscious yeah doing it in a sustainable way yeah so one of the big suggestions that they have is um, for conferences, uh, international conferences to be kind of phased out a bit, or at least uh, to um, make them more accessible online, for instance, so that you don't have to travel necessarily to faraway places, um, to have, uh, you know, um, one of the suggestions is for big international tele- um, conferences to have kind of local um, national satellite conferences where people can uh, congregate within their own country, uh, but then they don't have to fly overseas. Just kind of link yeah. up over the internet. Yeah, because I had an experience with this a few months back, because I was due to present a paper at a conference in Lyon, but I didn't have the funds to go there myself. 
So I briefly floated the idea to my supervisor because we already had other members of our group who were going to be there anyway. One of those was going to be presented in the paper. I was wondering if it would be possible for me to Skype in at the end and take questions because obviously I was the first author on this paper. I'd be best place to answer them. And he looked at me as if I was a bit strange. Well, I mean, I am a bit strange, but that's beside the point. But I mean, really, there shouldn't be any uh, objection to that, right? Yeah. As long as you're kind of there, you're there, you're presenting your work, and you're available for questions. But it seems to me like one of the big reasons why these big conferences are held is because it prevents, uh, because it presents networking opportunities for you to become part of the of wider community. Oh, yeah, absolutely, and those are and will remain important. They will. Um, but I also think um, that kind of ties into how um, poorer countries are kind of systemically left out of the question. Uh, because, um, you know, from experience, I know that um, if you're an, uh, an African astronomer, it can feel, it can be, easy, it can easily feel like uh, it's a bit of a, an old boys club and you well, you don't have the funds to travel uh, to Europe or to uh, the Americas and can very quickly become uh, exclusionary. So oh yeah, definitely. I mean, conferences are expensive. They are extremely expensive, um, and if there's a, a a cultural barrier as well, all these things kind of uh, heap up. So, I, I personally think that that like that moving away from these conferences would be democratizing in more ways than one. Yeah, I think having these online um, meetings become more commonplace means they can happen more often as well because then you don't have to travel a long way if you want it to happen it can happen yes I think it's more of an online offline hybrid that the authors are pushing for at this point from what I've read anyway so yeah but I personally am on board with that yeah absolutely Yeah. yeah to make these these kinds of things more accessible because conferences can be pretty overloading places. They can be extremely busy. Yeah, they are exhausting as well. Yeah, especially for folks on the autism spectrum like myself. That's not something I've talked about on the show before. That's that's for my own interview in a few months' time. <laughs> and of course, another aspect which has become, well, it's been raised as an issue recently as more women enter the field is that of childcare, as more astronomers have families. Yes, it was at, yeah, it was NAM both last year and this year, which have been making better childcare arrangements. But of course, if you've got an online setting, that's one less thing that you need to worry about. Yeah. Well, I, yeah, I think it kind of goes to show that a lot of the, the practices, the traditional practices, which have been est- established in astronomy, just aren't really, um, inviting to everyone and it should probably be um, rethought um, yeah. for, for multiple reasons and, and climate change being a, yeah. a huge one of them. For the world as it currently is and for what it will become. Right. Let's see, where do I want to go next? Yeah, let's go for flying next because obviously flying is something that is talked about a lot in this paper as a carbon intensive activity. And, I mean, I've been through my PhD, so 
I am just as guilty of this as the rest of us. I've been out to Thailand. So one thing that is mentioned here in the paper is that institutional policy should require justification for travel in proportion to the climate impact of the trip. So it's proposing that studies become more centralised in a way. They become more localised. So if you are heading out to the UK from the States or from the UK to Thailand or what have you, so that the further you go, the better your justification has to become for going. And that has to be budgeted for in a carbon budget, just as it is in a financial budget. And they're also proposing that if you are going out on these long trips, stay out there for longer to make the most of your time there. Yeah, I think that's probably uh, one of the more important points, is um, not just trying to reduce the length of travel, but to reduce the frequency. Because if you're going um, from one country to the next every couple of days, that's a lot worse than if you're um, staying somewhere for a protracted length of time. Yeah, say a couple of months, if you're working with collaborators out there. Yeah, that's a really easy way that things can be restructured. Other measures that the authors propose include more basic things like installing renewable energy resources in university buildings, which we actually have. We've got a bunch of solar panels here on the roof of Alangiering. I can't imagine they're working very much today because it's grey and miserable. Yeah, it hasn't been a very sunny week. No. But in the foyer, there is actually a little screen where you can track the amount of emissions that have been saved since the solar panels were installed. And it's currently standing at 78.8 tonnes of CO2. Jeez, that's crazy. Which is about 40 years worth of human emissions at 2030 levels. So it might not be very much in the grand scheme of things, but it's something. And another thing that they propose, well, not propose, it's something that's been rolled out in Canada already quite successfully, is the use of new building materials for astronomy infrastructure. So one of the success stories they point to here is a student hall that has been built out of mass timber, they call it. So it's timber that's been glued and laminated to provide a new framework for buildings in place of the traditional steel and concrete. So, but you can check that out online, the University of British Columbia. It looks pretty impressive. Obviously, wood is a sustainable material, and because the building is lighter, the foundations don't have to be dug so deep. So it's improved in that way as well. And one black mark on our own record, unfortunately, is that the authors also want to push more institutions to divest from fossil fuel interests. And I'm ashamed to say that Manchester has not done that yet. Oh, really? Yeah, we're one of the few institutions in the country to still have funds tied up in there. So is that just in investment somehow? Uh, it's in stocks and shares of fossil fuel companies. Yeah, no, they And there's one other interesting section here titled Climate Science in Education and Outreach. Because as astronomers, a lot of us have public platforms. We have at least a basic understanding of atmospheric physics. And we are typically in contact with the public quite a bit. Well, it's evidenced by the fact that we're sat here talking to you guys. So, should I call it a duty? An obligation? 
I'm not quite sure what the best word would be for this. I'm just kind of musing aloud at this point. Responsibility. Yeah, yeah. Mm, that's a good word for it. Because something that you'll see in particular in some internet circles is that people will be pushing very strongly to colonise the moon or to colonise Mars as a bolt hole or a safe haven for us if we irreparably screw things up here. So what are your thoughts on that approach? I think looking after the planet that we have at the moment should be the priority instead of ruining it and then kind of abandoning it, I think. And I think we should be showing how it should be done, maybe as scientists. Mm. I also kind of think that all these get-out routes that are being proposed are not going to be applied equitably by the nature of things. Uh, You know, the people who are going to get to Mars are not going to be the people who are most vulnerable to... No. Um, So on a basic moral level, I think, uh, you know, the, the conversation has to start, first of all, how to prevent large-scale damage uh, from happening and how to prevent the most vulnerable uh, people uh, from its effects. Um, and after that, we can maybe start thinking about how uh, about moving to Mars. Yeah. I mean, my personal big concern with this is that if we don't do that and we push to the Moon and Mars, quote-unquote, too quickly that there won't be much of a motivation to change the system as it currently is. Yeah, exactly. And we will take all of those same weaknesses and failings with us before we've properly learned our lessons, as it were. And the authors of this white paper agree with this as well. So I've got another choice quote here. Students must learn instead of Earth's unique status as an inhabited planet and come to appreciate humanity's duty to keep it that way. Which is a sentiment I, I think is quite noble. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So I think I'll just just conclude with their concluding remarks. So to finish up, they say that astronomers are uniquely prepared to appreciate the vast magnitude of the global climate crisis and its implications for the future of our only known habited planet. Astronomy must, therefore, like every field of human activity take urgent steps to mitigate the developing climate crisis and avoid the worst potential outcomes while adapting to those that are inevitable. And then they recommend that climate responsibility be an explicit priority in their plan that they've just set out. Yeah, I'm really happy that uh, institutions are looking at these things and how we can formalise them because I think, you know, it's one thing to have a, a commitment to say we're committed to um, reducing climate yeah. change. I mean, in doing the background reading for this, I found that other institutions are starting to take this more seriously. But this is really the first time that I've seen it committed in black and white like this, yeah. in a yeah. paper on the archive. Instead of a, a vague, let's yeah. try and do something. So, yeah, so, whether Canada and the world as a whole will take that up remains to be seen. So we'll have to wait and see which of these recommendations they take forwards. 
And now, uh, on a lighter note, here's George Bendo with Ask an Astronomer. Chris Quant asks, what happens to a gravitational wave when it reaches the edge of the universe? Well, the short answer is that gravitational waves, which travel at the speed of light, are never going to reach the edge of the universe. And this is in part because the universe does not really have an edge. The closest thing is the edge of the visible universe, which is the afterglow from the Big Bang that we see as cosmic microwave background radiation. Given that the radiation traveled at the speed of light from a time close to the beginning of the universe, and that the edge of the visible universe is traveling at the speed of light, it would be impossible for anything traveling at the speed of light or slower to ever catch up with the edge of the visible universe. A more general question would be, what happens to gravitational waves over time? Well, they generally weaken as a function of the square of the distance that they travel, just like electromagnetic radiation does. This is kind of a boring answer, but it's the best answer to the question. Philip the Rich asks, I'm wondering whether Ultima Thule took on its present form not in the protoplanetary solar disk, but in the ejecta of a previous supernova. Has any research been carried out on how supernova ejecta condenses, and would this throw any light on any of this? Well, a lot of work has gone into studying how solid matter forms from supernovae, and it has generated a lot of controversy, in part because of disputes over data processing techniques and over identifying which infrared sources are actually associated with the supernova remnants and which infrared sources are clouds of dust that just happen to fall along the line of sight to supernova remnants. I've even been peripherally involved in some of these debates, too. In any case, the material ejected from supernovae is expected to create interstellar dust grains, but the shock waves from the supernovae are also expected to destroy dust grains, just to make life confusing. Everyone's expectation is that the material ejected from supernovae are going to form the types of dust grains seen in the interstellar medium which are very small things around 100 nanometers in size. The expanding gas shells just don't seem like the type of environment for dust to condense into anything much larger than a millimeter. On the other hand, protoplanetary disks are regions where the material has gravitationally collapsed into a plane. And these types of gravitational processes are what are needed for dust grains to condense into larger objects. This is why astronomers think that most large objects in the solar system, including Ultima Thule and all of the planets and asteroids, probably formed in the protoplanetary disk that existed while the sun was forming. Ianto Guy asks, Is there any evidence that the Oort cloud really exists? And how long will it be before Voyager 1 and 2 reach it? And what will be the next significant landmark that they get to after that? 
So for reference, the Oort cloud is a cloud of comet-like objects orbiting somewhere between 2,000 and 100,000 astronomical units from the Sun, where one astronomical unit is equivalent to the distance from the Sun to the Earth. The presence of the Oort cloud was proposed by Jan Oort in 1950 as the source of comets with orbital periods of about 100,000 years or more. The presence of such comets seems to prove the existence of the Oort cloud, but we don't have any direct observations of things that are orbiting within the Oort cloud. Related to this, the presence of the Kuiper Belt was first suggested by Gerard Kuiper in 1951 as the source of short-period comets with orbital periods of around 100 years, such as Halley's Comet. The first object other than Pluto and Charon found orbiting within the Kuiper Belt was in 1992, and one of the two people who found that object later taught me planetary astronomy at the University of Hawaii. NASA's websites indicate that both Voyager spacecrafts will reach the Oort cloud in about 300 years, and will exit it in about 30,000 years. After that, the spacecrafts will effectively no longer be under the gravitational influence of the Sun, and will be drifting in interstellar space. Additionally, NASA's websites indicate that the next highlight for Voyager 1 will be in 40,000 years' time, when it will get closer to the star AC plus 7938888 than it would be to the Sun. Thanks for that, George. And now, on to the feedback. Our feedback bag is looking a little bit empty at the moment. So I think we're still suffering from the after-effects of the, of the mailing system going down recently. Yeah, apologies for that. Um, I think it's sorted out now, so if you um, want to get in touch with us, we should be available by, by the website and all that. So, um, yeah, we, we always appreciate people getting in touch. And, oh, yeah. And if you want to get in touch, you can do so via the website at www.jodcast.net. On Twitter at twitter.com slash jodcast. On Facebook at facebook.com slash jodcast. Through YouTube at youtube.com forward slash jodcast. On Flickr at flickr.com forward slash groups forward slash jodcast. And don't forget that you can send us posts as well. The address is on the website. Thanks to Atsuhisa Ota and Shabazz Chowdhury for the interviews. The editors this month were Hongmeng Tang, Michael Wright and George Bender. And the producer was Tian Bezaidenoid. Until next time... Jordan! Jordan.